All right, we're continuing our study through the Old Testament. We're up to 1 Kings chapter 4. <coughs> Excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 4. The last time we saw how the Lord had given Solomon wisdom, and then we saw how his first test was determining which prostitute was lying and which prostitute was the real mother of the living baby. Kind of a shocking story there. Something that we noticed from that story, though, was how easy it was for these two prostitutes to be able to come into the presence of the king. You know, and after seeing that, it should make us stop and appreciate how easy it is for us, you know, to enter into the presence of our king. You know, Lord Jesus had told us that we can come boldly to his throne whenever we need help. And, you know, that shouldn't amaze us how easy the access is for us, too. I guess we should say, wow, that just blows us away. I mean, we look at these prostitutes and think, how did they even get in front of the king? I mean, that's amazing. But then the Lord is saying, well, it's really amazing that I've opened the door for you, too, to be able to come. So we saw how Solomon used his God-given wisdom to solve the problem that the two prostitutes had. And now we're going to see, uh, we'll get a chance to look at this, how Solomon used this God-given wisdom to set up the government structure over his own kingdom. Uh, it's, it's really amazing just to see how the Lord blessed him, and he just kind of keeps rolling with this uh, wisdom that the Lord's blessed him with in his life. So Solomon here, he was setting up a very efficient system to keep things running smoothly during his reign as king. So 1 Kings uh, chapter 4, let's start at verse 1 here. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elahoreph and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Alihud, the recorder. So we get a few names mentioned here, but also some offices or some jobs that they were given. One group is called the scribes. Uh, they'd be responsible for basically keeping all the official records and any official declarations that were made by the king. Uh, their job was to, to write all that down and have that uh, marked. They also have a recorder mentioned here. He'd be responsible for keeping track of all the daily events of the kingdom, you know, kind of, I guess, like an official journal. That would be his job. Uh, so then we go on to verse 4. We got some more people mentioned in this group. Uh, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, and we've seen him before, and Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. So we see this Benaiah here. He's the commander now of Solomon's army, and we saw the Lord put him in place. He was a, a bodyguard for his father David, and he ends up just fitting right into the story here of being uh, in the military and doing a really good job with that. Uh, we then see this guy Abiathar. We've seen him before, too. If you remember, he was sent home by Solomon when Solomon very first started his reign there. And the reason was because this guy had defected and joined Adonijah when David was close to dying. And everybody's wondering who's going to be the next king. And Adonijah steps up and is going to steal the throne. Uh, this guy decided to go with him. But he's probably recognized here by title just because he did serve for a long time under David's reign. And he was faithful, you know, for quite a long time until he jumped sides and went over with Adonijah. So Solomon, 
he couldn't remove him from being a priest. That was a call of God on the family line there. But he could limit his authority by having him exiled, and that's what he did. So uh, remember, we saw that before. He was of the line of Eli, and that uh, family line was going to stop being used by the Lord in the area of priest, uh, the priestly work. So he is no longer in the position, but he's still a priest. That's his title. So he is acknowledged here as being part of this group. Uh, verse 5 goes on. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the uh, officers, that was his position, uh, Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, and the king's friend. So Azariah as he's mentioned here, he's going to be over these officers, as they're called here. And these officers were going to be governors. We see later on that Solomon's going to put over 12 districts. Uh, he's setting this system up and putting people groups in place and leaders over them. And it's, uh, again, a very efficient system the way he's setting it up. We'll see some more about these guys in a little bit here. <coughs> Excuse me. So this other guy named Zabud, He's an interesting guy. I really love it when the Lord puts kind of these little tidbits in here. If you, if you catch them as you're reading through, I know a lot of times our temptation is to read past these names sometimes because there's so many we're not familiar with how to pronounce them even. And uh, the temptation is just to kind of run through some and not pay much attention. But here there is an interesting side note about this guy. Uh, it says he's a priest. It also says he's the king's friend. That's pretty interesting. So he's an interesting fellow in the sense that as a priest, he is a godly friend of the king, okay? And it's a real blessing to have a godly friend that you can go to, you know, to mull things over with, to get to pray for you. So Solomon, he was really blessed to have a guy like this close to him. And thinking about having the title there of being a friend to the king, there was a Christian guy who related it this way, I like to think of myself as the king's friend. I am a friend of King Jesus. Jesus declared, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. What a blessing to be known as the king's friend. I thought that was really cool that we can consider ourselves friends of the king as well. So we, could, we, we see this name in the list and we're going, that's a good brother, we know. <laughs> we want to be like that too, be known as a friend to the king. Verse six goes on, a high shar, He's over the household. And then Adoniram, the son of Abda, he's over the labor force. So this first guy, Ajahira, being over the household, he would be in charge of the king's palace, and that meant all of the servants, all the laborers that worked there. And we're going to see that's uh, quite a few people as we get in a little further here. And uh, the labor force then that this other guy, Adoniram, was over, uh, he would be made, it would made the uh, force he's working with, they'd be made up of all the conquered armies that David had defeated. When he conquered a place, then all those peoples and the uh, armies that would be brought on underneath him as slaves and foreign laborers, they became a major workforce now that they're going to be working on building projects in Israel. So Adoniram was in charge of those. It was kind of like a foreign labor force because they were from outside that had tried to fight David and they lost. So now they're brought on as, uh, as subjects and servants under the kingdom here. So verse 7, and Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel. So now we see these officials, as it said in verse 2, they're now mentioned here as 12 governors. And it says they provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision 
for one month of the year. So it tells us a preview a little bit here of the structure. Solomon has these guys set up and their main job is to make sure the food supply is kept up and they're all given one month that it's their job to make sure the food comes in. And uh, we'll see there's a whole bunch of food is going to be involved in that story. So we're given uh, some information here about these guys. We'll see more later on and the responsibility they have, which is a really big responsibility for supplying food for Solomon's household and all the workers that were there. And you know, Solomon, he had set it up that each one of these governors had their own particular month. And during that month, it's your total job here to make sure the household is taken care of with the food, that it was delivered daily, and that all the workers are going to be supplied with nutrition. So uh, that's the way he had that one set up. Uh, then in the next section here from verses 8 to verse 19, we've got a whole number of names that are listed here. And uh, these are names that are given of the governors. He identifies them for us and uh, tells us sometimes a little bit about them, sometimes not much. So I'm not going to go through reading every one of those names there because uh, we don't know how to pronounce a lot of them anyway, like I said. So, uh, but what I do find interesting, again, is some of the side notes that we have tucked in here. So in verse 11, <clears throat> if you look at that one, excuse me, it mentions here this guy, he had uh, Tapheth, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. So he married one of Solomon's daughters. And then in verse 15, we see another one here. Ahimez in Naphtali, he also took Basabath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. So we've got another one of Solomon's daughters that's married to a different one of the governors, governors mentioned here. And I guess if you think about it, with all the wives that Solomon had, we really shouldn't be surprised to see a few of his daughters among the list of the officials here, right? Uh, Solomon's family, it must have been very huge and seemed like it was ever increasing as he keeps adding more and more women, <laughs> you know, to his entourage here. So uh, we'll jump down now to verse 20 because there's some more things here you want to uh, pull out of here. There's some really interesting lessons. It says in verse 20, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So during this time of peace, and it came because King David had established that peace for Israel uh, with all the fights and the wars and everything he took on. So he's got it now to be a place of peace. And Solomon kind of gets to just walk into that peace that's been provided. So during this time of, of peace and not a lot of war for anything going on, the population was able to multiply very quickly. And it's interesting, if you remember from our readings in the past, way back to Genesis, as the Lord was promising Abraham, you know, that he's going to bless them and their inheritance would be like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. This is part of that fulfillment we see right here. There's a whole bunch of folks that are, are growing in this society now uh, at this time. It's because of the peace that's there. So this is a healthy sign for a nation that they were growing and growing and growing. That's a good thing, especially when it's Israel, it's the people of God. I know you may have heard of some of the statistics that are available during our time period and how some countries have diminished their birth rate. You know, and that has caused some alarm. According to the statisticians, if you go below a certain birth rate, you know, then you cannot sustain your culture down the road. And they say if you get to a certain point, there's no way to come back from that. Your culture is going down, and there isn't anything you can do to stop that. 
So it's amazing that we can actually come up with these figures in our time period. And I've, I've heard that there are countries that have already crossed that line. And it's because of birth control and population control and things like abortion. And it's just amazing to see that we can do this damage to our culture by thinking we're so smart. You know, we figured all these things out. So whenever man takes control and decides to overrule God's way of doing things, it can have some devastating effects down the road. But man in his foolishness, he thinks he's smarter than God and how very foolish that is, you know. And it tells us something interesting too in verse 20, if you notice. It says not only were they growing so much, but it says they were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now we see those things and we're thinking, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. We like that ourselves here to have that kind of a culture where we can enjoy life, you know. So they enjoyed the prosperity they had at that time because there was always plenty of food. That's why it says they were eating. That was not a problem for them. And now they were actually rejoicing about it, which is a good thing too. You know, in most of the world today even, even in our time period, so many people go to bed at night and their stomach is actually hurting because of a lack of food. I mean, we don't think about that much in our culture. That doesn't, you know, we're, we're pretty are away from that kind of stuff and not too close to it most of the time. So it doesn't cross our mind on a normal basis here. We pretty much take food for granted. You know, we've got such an abundance of it, and we can run to any number of drive-through food joints. You know, even on the way home today, you probably pass a number of them. And we forget the majority of the world is starving. You know, it's always been that way. Uh, so these people under Solomon's rule, they were able to see what it's like to have an abundance of food. Like I said, for us, it's like that's a good thing. We want to make sure there's food. You know, we don't want to be without that. And we've been very blessed in our culture not to have to really worry about that much. But Warren Wearsby made an interesting observation about this verse. He said that this verse describes a prosperous people, but not a spiritual people. Wow, you know, I thought that really gets you thinking. It's good to see these people rejoicing over the abundance of food, just like in our own culture. But wouldn't it be great to see that these people here in the story were rejoicing over the presence of the Lord in their lives too? Wouldn't that be a great add-on to what it's saying right here? And it's not, it's missing, you know? But wouldn't it be awesome too if we saw that in our own culture, in our own society? But sadly, that's apparently missing among the people in the story here, and it's totally absent in our country too. God is, they're trying not to mention God rather than to bring glory to him and, and point the finger to the Lord and say, our God is a great God in this country. They, they're, they're trying to cover that up altogether. So this is a good verse to see that their, their needs are met and they're having a good time, but it, means, it would look so much better to see the Lord in there too. Verse 21 goes on. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So this is the, the largest land area that Israel ever can, had control over since the time when they first came into the promised land. So this is the very top that they get to at this point as far as the land goes. They at this point now were the dominant ruler over the Middle East at that time period. And that's interesting because we always hear about the Middle East in the news, right? 
And it's never because Israel's at the top of the ranks there. It's because there's a problem over there and they've got issues, right? People picking on them. So what's interesting is that all of this land expansion they acquired under David's military conquest and battles, it was land that they took back when enemies attacked them. It's kind of interesting to think about this. David, although he was in a lot of battles, a lot of warfare, he wasn't out there trying to expand the territory of Israel. It was just that when some armies attacked Israel and David conquered them, then Israel received their territory and their land. So this came about, kind of interesting, by Israel defending themselves, not by them outright conquering weaker nations so they could take territory from them. You know, I think that's kind of interesting because we've got an enemy who comes after us too. And I'm trusting this is always the case. When he comes out after us and we do what God tells us, we stand our ground, we defend the truth, we don't let him have any, any ground, that we're actually taking ground back from him. <laughs> our territory for the kingdom of God is increasing too. So this is an interesting picture as we stop and see this area. Now the end of verse 21, it tells us that these other places that have been conquered are now under his reign. They brought tribute and they served Solomon all the days of his life. That means that there was a taxation that was done by Solomon over them, and this taxation was also going to increase the wealth of the nation of Israel here. So as the taxes would come in, the wealth was growing and growing there, which was the way the Lord set that up. It was supposed to happen that way. So they've got an unbelievable amount of wealth, and it's just going higher and higher, and there's peace in the land. Unbelievable picture when you step back and look at that. Now, verse 22, now Solomon's provision for one day. Remember, they had to have provisions brought by these governors to take care of Solomon's family and workers and the people and that. So it says here, his provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. Now, 30 cores was about 185 bushels. That's of just the flour, okay? Then there's the uh, 60 cores is 370 bushels, and that's of the meal. So we've got a lot of flour and a lot of meal. Can you imagine the number of cooks it would take to make all those loaves of bread and food alone? Out of 185 bushels of flour and 370 bushels of meal. We're talking a lot of cooks, right? So somebody said that this many could actually supply the loaves themselves, just the bread, not anything else on this food list we're going to see. But just the, the loaves here, you could supply thousands and thousands of loaves of bread. And that was just for one day. That's amazing when you look at this. Verse 23, here's the grocery list that goes on. 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Now, the fatted oxen, they would be the ones that were barn-fed. And then the 20 oxen would be the open-range-fed uh, oxen, I guess if you want to call them that. So the fat, fatted oxen here, those that they're raised in the barn, basically, then they literally set in the stall, they would be the prime meat. That'd be the really good stuff, okay? And then the open range would be considered the more common meat, all right? So what we see is they had such an abundance of food here that they actually had choices. 
Now, again, we take this stuff for granted. In our country, we've got tons of choices. You know, do you want to eat Chinese? you want Mexican? What do you want? We've got so many flavors we can go to, right? But in most of the world, they don't have any choice. They're just hopeful to get a meal for the day. So these people now, we see they're prosperous. Reminds us of where we're at. You know, they have choices for food. Uh, so in the world there, a lot of people hope they can find food for today and maybe hope they can find food for tomorrow, but they really can't think any further than that. You know, we, got, we can stock our shelves and stock our, our uh, refrigerators with food for down the road. But for most people, it would really be considered a rare treat, even back in that day, to get some meat as part of your meal. That's an amazing thing for them. So when the Lord starts rallying off all of this food for just the daily needs for them, that's astounding that they have that much available. So it shows the extreme prosperity they enjoyed. And that, that apparently goes for our country too when you think about the extreme prosperity God has placed us in right here. Now as you think about the massive number of peoples that could be fed from this list of daily provisions for Solomon's household. Remember, he's going to eventually have a thousand wives and concubines. That's his personal family. It's a lot of mouths to feed, right? And from that, I'm sure you've got a huge number of children as well. You also have your household servants to take care of those people and other workers that are going to take care of the, the grounds or whatever else needs done there. So we're talking a whole bunch of people. And we get to some of these numbers, it might shock you a little bit. It did me. So you've got the ground staff. You've got any other servants that were working at the palace or any other person that would need to be fed on the official grounds here. Some people did the math on this. And they estimated from the food on this list, this, this daily shopping list, you could feed over 15,000 people a day. That's a daily feeding, okay? The flour alone here would be about 30, 55-gallon drums, just to try to get this in our head about how much we're talking about. So we're talking about having the, the ability here to daily feed a whole lot of people. And you think about our country here. We have so much extra food. Our restaurants throw food away every night, you know, at the end of the day. Mercy's sakes, you know, we should truly thank the Lord for the provision we have in our country. And these passages, they, they, to me, they, they remind me of that. They make us hungry kind of as we go through this food. And it's like, oh, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. But also we should say, thank you, Lord, that we don't have to sweat. Are we going to get a meal today? Will we have something in our belly before we go to bed so it doesn't hurt, so we can sleep tonight? Most of the time for us, unfortunately, it's the other way around. Way too much, and oh, I'm not comfortable, you know. Most of the world, they're the opposite. They're just hoping for something to make the stomach pain stop. <clears throat> so when we go over, <clears throat> excuse me, when we go over passages like this, I'm reminded about a church that generally went to a long time ago. This dinner, I know I've probably told you guys this before, this dinner was put on by some missionaries. They invited the whole church to attend. So everybody came, and I'm sure everybody was expecting, like we were just assuming, it was going to be a usual, you know, church type of dinner with the meat and all the, all the fixings. But this dinner was really different. The missionaries served everyone a small bowl of white rice and a small cup of water. And they informed us at that meal that even this meal we were eating, we were eating better than two-thirds of the world's population at that time. That's a shock for us Americans, isn't it? We don't think about that stuff. Like I said, food's everywhere. 
And they said that we were even given a treat with that little meal because they had put some chicken broth over the rice, which is a treat that most folks who could get rice in the other parts of the world, they weren't going to get the flavored rice. They were just getting plain old rice. So I thought here that the missionaries, you know, their point was well taken. But we sat across the table from an elder of that church, and he was outright complaining now because he had to take his wife out to eat afterwards and pay for her dinner because they were expecting a real meal when they came to the church that day. And I thought, wow, you really missed the point here. And this dinner was probably to wake up people just like you. You know, I think you missed it. So I hope, you know, that we really appreciate the extreme blessing that we get every day in our country. The Lord has truly blessed our socks off here. We may not realize it at times, but he really has. And uh, man, let us not take that for granted. Something else we should consider in our own country here is not only the abundance of physical food we've got here, but the abundance of spiritual food we've got. I mean, I know we have way too many cults and we have an ever-increasing number of false religions that seem to keep seeping into our country, but we've got such an abundance here of good spiritual food. I mean, we got Bibles, every flavor you want of a Bible, right, in our country. We've got Bible teaching on the radio, the television, the internet. Any time of the day or night, you can find some good, wholesome teaching of God's Word if a person wants it. It is there. And there, there's more available online, I think, than a person could ever take in in a, in a lifetime, you know. So, again, we should be extremely thankful that we've got an overabundance of God's word that is available to us, and it's all around us. I know not nearly enough people in our culture take advantage of that, but at least it is available for those who want it. I don't think it's a coincidence either that our nation, we've got an abundance not only of physical food, but also of spiritual food. Our God has truly blessed us with blessing on top of blessing. And you know, the sheep that are mentioned here too, if you noticed, it's got this, this other list of animals in case you're really not into the, the oxen food. Uh, you've got sheep, 100 sheep every day. And also they had, in case you didn't like that flavor, you've got deer, you've got some gazelles, some roebucks, and some fatted fowl. So almost anything you want, again, they had that. <clears throat> and this shows us, too, they had such a variety of choices because they were so prosperous. But I like what somebody said. Our real riches as Christians is our relationship with the Lord and having the righteousness of Jesus Christ as part of our being, you know, since we came to the Lord. And even if we don't have many physical possessions in this life, we should never feel bad about that. I want you to look at Psalm 37 for a minute here. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, I look down at verse 16. This is a really good verse to meditate on because sometimes the enemy kicks us around and says, you know, you got nothing. What do you think you got going, you know? Psalm 37, verse 16, a little that a righteous man has, just a little, is better than the riches of many wicked. So we can be extremely thankful to the Lord if we know him, if we've got his righteousness, no matter what else we got going in this world. That's enough to praise the Lord for all day long, <laughs> a little that a righteous man has. And if you're in Christ, you're that righteous person. So back in our passage here, these 12 governors now, they're responsible for bringing in the taxes, we're told, from, from their district. 
but they're also responsible to bring in the daily provisions for that particular month that they were in charge of. And someone said it would take the other 11 months to prepare enough and to organize everything so that when your month rolled around, you know, they would be ready. And this must have been a challenge for the people of Israel to meet all these daily supply needs. I mean, this is a lot of stuff, right? And as you know, <laughs> it's one kind of uncomfortable message, lesson we get here, big government comes with a really big appetite. <laughs> so you got to feed that beast, right? So that's why you see our taxes going higher and higher. When you get people in office, you're always pushing for bigger government. It comes with a bigger appetite. So there are some people who also look at this passage and they say, it, this wasn't that difficult of a challenge for the people of Israel. But others look at it and say, this really was tough on the folks, you know, because each section had to fulfill these needs. And some say, well, it was just one time a year. So I guess, as you think about that, it's funny to see commentators on both sides. I guess it comes down to the view of whether you like big government or not, you know, as far as which side you take. But I think when you look at the massive amount of food that we're talking about here, and this needed to be done on a daily basis, even if it's only for one month, you know, that if you were the one that had to provide for this, wow, that is a lot of work, a lot of pressure. So it's still, to me, it's an unbelievable amount of planning as well as a physical provision that you'd have to come up with. Although he does have a system that works, I'm sure that one month coming around, you're glad when your month was over. <laughs> it's like, whew, you made it through that one. <clears throat> so verse 24 says, For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And notice what it says here. He had peace on every side all around him. That's an amazing thing. To be able to say you're at peace with all the nations that surround you. You know, that's something we're blessed here too in our country, right? We don't worry every day whether we wake up and if our neighboring countries are going to attack us today. Praise the Lord, we don't have that to be concerned with. But Israel, they don't get to enjoy that these days either, do they? They're completely surrounded by their enemies. So when they look back at this time of Israel, they're probably like, oh man, I long for those days where we don't have one enemy breathing down our neck, you know? But obviously today, they, they don't have that. They're longing for peace and safety over there in Israel. And that's what the Antichrist is going to capitalize on when he comes. He knows they're hungry for that, and he's going to try to use that to turn them towards him. And it'll work for a while, we, the Lord tells us. Verse 25, it says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. So the entire time he was in office, he was that kind of peace, that kind of safety. That is, is really, really cool. If you want to look for a second at Micah chapter 4, or I'll read it to you. That's one of those books hidden at the end of the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4 says this, talking about this description here. It says, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. This is talking about when Jesus returns. It says, no one shall make them afraid. So that's kind of the, the idiom here, the picture you have. If you're able to sit under your own vine tree and your own fig tree, it means you're out in the open, you own this thing, it's yours, you're prosperous and everything's going good. You don't have to be afraid. It says, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. 
So a really cool picture here when the Lord says, this is kind of a glimpse during the time of Solomon, what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And they have no fear of anybody touching them. So a really blessed time for Israel at this point. Now back in our passage of 1 Kings 4, verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Now there, you find a conflict in some of the other passages here. It says 4,000 stalls, and I think 4,000 is probably a little more accurate. But this is a real no-no, that Solomon has gathered all of these horses because they're going to be used for military purposes. But take a look back at Deuteronomy 17 again. We've seen this passage a couple of times when we talk about Solomon and his reign. And, you know, I hate to say it, I'm thinking just in the few times he looked at this passage, it may have been more times than Solomon looked at it because he sure didn't follow it. So it's really sad. He was supposed to pay really close attention here to the law of Moses. And this is very clearly written. Deuteronomy 17 if you look down to verse 16, talking about when you have a king in your land, verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Well, he violated that completely. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you should not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. He nixed on that one too, lest his heart turn away. And that is what happened to Solomon later on nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And unfortunately, he violated just about every single one of those things. And you're thinking, Solomon, what were you reading? <laughs> were you reading Cosmopolitan magazine or something? You're supposed to be reading the law of God and keeping your eyes on it. Nothing else, you know? So what we see from that, the lesson we get back at our First Kings 4 section here, Solomon didn't pay much attention to the word of God. You know, and when we see how he blatantly ignored what God said so clearly, we can see how bad that looks. And you might say, well, you know, he had a very important position. He was the king, so he should have had his act together, right? But aren't you and I representatives of our King Jesus? <laughs> and even more than that, aren't we the children of our king, you know, our heavenly father? That makes us have a very responsible position as well. So when we blatantly ignore God's word, it looks pretty ugly too. And that's what the Lord wants us to see here. Now, the reason that the Lord didn't want Israel to increase that number of horses like this, because he did not want them to slip into the thinking that they were so great and they were so safe because of their military strength. And that would be an easy thing to fall into if you had an extremely powerful and large military force, right? He wanted them to always remember that it was the Lord who protected them, and he's the one who made them safe. But Solomon is violating this by the actions that he took here, and that's sad to see. So stepping back and looking at this picture, what is Solomon teaching the people or, or showing the people by his example, maybe unwittingly? But he's basically saying it's really not that important if you're careful to obey God's word. You don't really have to be that careful. You know, and you can hear the enemy whisper in your ear, yeah, the Lord understands. He gives leniency here. No, the Lord's telling us this for our own good. Solomon's messing up really bad here. But you know what? That's the kind of example we can unwittingly present too if we're not always careful to obey God's word. Because when other people see us and think, well, he's a Christian, he's doing that, I guess it's okay. That's the lesson we're giving them. 
And, you know, by doing things our own way, which is what Solomon was doing here, we're also maybe tempting people to trust in our military strength rather than trusting in the Lord. That's what Solomon did. By doing this, he's, he's basically promoting, we got this real powerful military, so you guys are safe. He should have been saying, we got this real powerful God, so you guys are safe. You know, that's what you want. God's never going to change. The military might go up or down, but God's not going to change, right? So may we, as we look at this, may we never discourage someone from trusting in the Lord. Because Solomon was doing that. I think the enemy was probably behind that pushing a bit. That's actually what's going on. It's like trust in our military part. Don't trust in, in the Lord. We got this. Verse 27 goes on in our passage. <clears throat> and these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. And it tells us an interesting point here. There was no lack in their supply. So this shows us that it was not draining the people from their food and stuff to make these supplies brought to King Solomon's palace. Uh, they had plenty to live on besides the wealth of the food that they provided each month. So that's good. Solomon's not you know, squeezing the people and getting the blood out of them so he can have everything taken care of. He's made sure that now they got plenty of provision too. And of course, it's God who's doing this in the background, right? Verse 28 says, They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. So these guys, they fulfilled their duties. They even made sure the animals were fed and kept healthy. That's really cool. They're taking care of everything. This is the future here. As long as your animals are in good shape, you've got a future down the road for food, right? So it's an amazing system that Solomon set up. And again, it was because of the wisdom that God had given him. Now, you know that little phrase at the end of the verse here where it says, each man basically did here according to his charge. What was given to him to do, he fulfilled it. And I found out that, that Spurgeon, he had preached a sermon on that part of the verse. Every man did the charge that was given to him, basically, you know. And he related to every believer because we've all been given a job to do by the Lord. We've all been gifted with some supernatural gift to be used in God's service. So we all fall in that category. But I really like the way Spurgeon ended that message. And here's what he said. Everything for Jesus, the glorious Solomon of our hearts, the beloved of our souls, life for Jesus, death for Jesus, time for Jesus, eternity for Jesus, hand and heart for Jesus, brain and tongue for Jesus, Night and day for Jesus. Sickness or health for Jesus. Honor or dishonor for Jesus. Shame or glory for Jesus. Everything for Jesus. Every man according to his charge. So may it be. Amen. I really like the way Spurgeon said that. Man, it's all focused on Jesus. What a great lesson. I thought that was good. Uh, let's go a little further. Verse 29 here. God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largest of heart like the sand on the seashore. This guy was huge in his wisdom and understanding. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. And just chew on that a second. And then it mentions some folks here, Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, 
Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So this list of guys here, apparently, they were guys that were known for being very wise men during that time period. We only really know about two of them. Uh, the one guy, Ethan, he's the one who wrote Psalm 89. And the guy named Heman here, he's the one who wrote Psalm 88. But the other guys, we're not really too familiar with them. But as far as Solomon now tells us at the end of that verse, his fame was in all the surrounding nations. This was a partial fulfillment of God's promise to Israel too. Uh, he said this in Deuteronomy 28, that if they would follow him, be obedient to him, that he would bring all nations under them and that they would be respected by all nations and feared by them. So this is a partial fulfillment. I mean, that's going to ultimately get fulfilled when Jesus returns, but they got to experience a little touch of that kingdom uh, during the time of Solomon, and most of it was because David laid the, the groundwork for all of this. Verse 32 he, he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So the Lord used him, you know, for a ton of wisdom that was written. We don't have all of it. We do have some. We've got Ecclesiastes. We've got the Song of Solomon. We also have Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. So he did those. And although it tells us this whole list of writings he's got, what's kind of interesting his dad, King David, is still referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And we saw that when we went through 2 Samuel. So it shows us something interesting. Solomon had the wisdom. He was able to write it down. Fortunately, he didn't use as much as he should have. But David, he had the heart for God. And it really shows up in the Psalms. So verse 33, also, Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall, he spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And I think it's amazing the Lord revealed to him all these things about creation. You know, the stuff he came up with, I'm sure people were wowed at, like, how in the world did you know that? And of course, it's the Lord that spoke all that into his ear and his heart, you know. That's where he got all that wisdom. He heard it from the Creator himself. That's pretty awesome. I thought it was interesting, too, as you think, a lot of the inventions and the, the discoveries we've had through the ages, they're things that God's revealed. And some of those guys that were scientists and things that discovered them, they walked with the Lord, so they pointed to him and gave him credit. Now, obviously, any discovery should be given credit to the Lord, right? It's all his stuff anyway. And he's kind enough to reveal some of these things to mankind to, to help us out, if we use it the right way. But it all should be given to the Lord anyway. And then verse 34, it says, And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That was an amazing time period. Can you imagine? All of this wisdom he's pouring out, these are the thoughts of God. All the nations around are, are hearing this amazing stuff, and it was all truth. And they acknowledged it. It was like, wow, you can't get this kind of truth anywhere else. We're going to go see this guy. But here's the amazing thing. The Lord has promised you and me that same kind of wisdom. We just have to get on our knees and ask for it. And the Lord said, ask in faith, but he will give us wisdom anytime we need it. What amazes me is that people during that time period, they honored and respected truth. Our times are a little more challenging. You and I have truth from God. We've got wisdom from the Lord. You know, the Lord gives us. Unfortunately, the people surrounding us aren't too hungry for that. <laughs> 
We can pray, Lord, please open their hearts to truth. Let them get so fed up with all the lies they hear every single day that they say, I'm done with this stuff. I spit this out. Feed me some truth. God, please help me find truth. And uh, we pray that we'll be available and ready to answer that when that call comes, okay? Now, Solomon here, him and his people, you think about this, they enjoyed such prosperity and peace, and it was because of the work of David when he was the king. He worked very hard, and he worked long hours, I'm sure, to make sure that God's people were able to find this place of peace and rest. And, of course, we see a beautiful picture of Christ in this. You know, you and I are getting ready to enjoy the rich prosperity and peace, not only now but for all eternity, because of the sacrificial work of Christ. He's our David. He's the one who made this place of peace and safety in this evil world. He made that for us. He did all the labor, and we get to enjoy so many benefits from that. So that's a real cause for us to say, let's praise the Lord. And let's pray right now. Father, we can't thank you enough for the unimaginable peace you give us in our heart. Even though we see this world tossed back and forth with the waves of disaster and destruction and fear, to know that we're safe in Christ and we can just hold on to you, Lord. Thank you for such a great privilege and honor. Thank you as you show us Solomon and the things that he did. And some things were right and some things were wrong. Help us to learn lessons on both sides of that, Lord. And Father, we have to say thank you for the wisdom you give us. Please lead us to people who are hungry for truth, people that want to know the truth about God. And Lord, we know they're out there. You've already shown us some, so we rejoice in that. But use us, Lord. Help us ready to be prepared to give an answer to every man who asks, Lord, that we can say we have truth to share with you. It's amazing wisdom because it's the wisdom of God. Lord, please fill us all with your spirit so we can be used that way. And Lord, we just want to give you the praise for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.